0: So, I want to acknowledge that the City of Toronto is situated on the territory of the Treaty of the Dish with One Spoon, a treaty between the Anishinaabe and the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Haudenosaunee. This treaty was an agreement to share the territory and to care for the land. Other Indigenous nations and settlers have been invited into this treaty, but the agreement to share the territory and to care for the land has not been honoured by the government of Toronto or the government of Canada. And this acknowledgement is particularly important to my talk today, which is part of my forthcoming book, Decolonizing Freedom. The book argues that decolonization depends on learning from the philosophies of relationality and relational freedom that ground indigenous political theories of resistance to colonization. In the work of Leanne Simpson, John Burroughs, and many others, we can find an understanding of relational freedom as participation in a system of interdependent relations with all beings. This is a political conception of freedom that connects individual freedom with democratic participation and with collective freedoms, and grounds indigenous politics of resurgence and decolonization. The ideal of relational freedom is rooted in philosophies of what Glenn Coulthard calls grounded normativity. As Coulthard writes, contemporary Indigenous struggles for freedom from colonization are rooted in an understanding of land as a system of reciprocal relations and obligations. This ethical understanding of land grounds a politics of Indigenous resurgence. For James Tully and John Burroughs, it is also central to a politics oriented towards transformative reconciliation with each other and with the earth. I write as a settler, a descendant of settlers who arrived in Canada several generations ago, and as a social and political philosopher and feminist theorist. And I draw on indigenous conceptions of relational freedom to engage a series of encounters with some Eurocentric conceptions of freedom. We're living in a time when the ideal of freedom seems to have been appropriated by the far right. This is a Hobbesian conception of freedom as non-interference, protected by an autocratic government by a strong leader. That ideal has been used for centuries in the West to protect patriarchal patriarchal rule over women, children, and slaves as property within the private realm of the household. So it's not an accident that that ideal of freedom is the one that supports the current proliferation of white supremacist heteropatriarchal leaders around the world. In Decolonizing Freedom, I argue that the Hobbesian conception of freedom was produced, in part, in response to the European encounter with the Amerindians. Freedom is formulated in a way that disavows conquest, disavows relations of power, disavows the startling individual and democratic freedoms of the Amerindians, to disavow the possibility of republican and democratic relational freedoms. It does this by disavowing relationship altogether. Of course, I'm condensing a lot here. In contrast, the ideal of freedom as a relationship with others has been a powerful source of democratic and resistance movements. As Martin Luther King put it, no one is free until all are free. We can find this ideal of freedom in relationship in the work of many theorists in the European tradition of critical theory, particularly in the work of Karl Marx and Hannah Arendt. The critical theory tradition is indebted to European encounters with indigenous philosophies of relational freedom, but that debt has been disavowed in a tradition of colonial unknowing that locates indigenous thought in the primitive past and understands freedom as the endpoint of historical progress. In European critical theories of freedom, we can find a fear of regression, a dialectic of attraction and repulsion, nostalgia for and disavowal of an imagined primordial past. So that's just a little bit of introduction to the claims of the book. In my talk today, I'm gonna take up one set of struggles for freedom and decolonization. So the talk is entitled, Indigenous Feminisms and Relational Rights. In this talk, I consider the struggle of indigenous women against the historic violation of their rights to belong to their communities in Canada, to argue that indigenous feminist theories and politics have developed unique formulations of relational rights Rooted in and oriented toward the normative value of relationality. The grounded normative ideal of relationality as a system of reciprocal relations is the motivating force of indigenous feminist politics, of a relational conception of individual and collective rights and freedoms, focused on individual and community well being and on resistance to all forms of colonial and heteropatriarchal domination. Indigenous women's struggles for civil and political rights to full inclusion in their communities have developed through critique of the discourse of nation and of sovereignty as only the right of non-interference and through critique of discourses of abstract individual rights and equal gender rights within the colonizing state. Working both with and against these discourses Indigenous feminist politics have formulated unique understandings of the right to have rights, understood as rights to participate in relations of responsibility for the well being of individuals and communities. These rights are rooted in conceptions of rights to land, not as property rights, but as rights to responsibility for land. Where land is understood as a system of relations among. beings. These relational formulations of rights have informed struggles to address multiple forms of violence against indigenous women and gender diverse people. Against the liberal feminist position that individual rights and gender equality rights must supersede indigenous claims to tradition and to collective self-determination, Indigenous feminists argue that any affirmation of individual rights or women's rights without a critique of state colonization fails to grasp the centrality of racialized gendered colonization in the oppression of Indigenous women. Indigenous feminists affirm the centrality of women's power in Indigenous communities and Indigenous history and argue for rights to belong to those communities and to exercise that power in the context of struggles for collective Self determination, resurgence, and decolonization. Against the indigenous anti feminist position that individual and gender equality rights undermine collective self determination, indigenous feminists argue that this claim denies the history of state legislated heteropatriarchal dominance and its perpetuation in many indigenous organizations and communities. This ongoing history of the undermining of women's power has violated Indigenous traditions and undermined Indigenous sovereignty. If relationality is the ground for a politics of Indigenous resurgence, the continued violation of relationships between Indigenous women and their communities will continue to thwart Indigenous freedom. While their positions are opposed, both advocates of women's rights over collective self-determination and critics of women's rights in defense of collective rights of self-determination both assume a simple binary opposition between individual and collective rights assuming that claims to individual rights undermine struggles for collective self-determination. The anti-rights discourses of post-colonial and resurgent critiques assume a binary opposition between rights and decolonial politics. Against arguments that Indigenous feminists who turn to the state to claim individual rights are betraying Indigenous sovereignty or resurgence, and that Western rights discourses are necessarily opposed to Indigenous traditions and principles, Many indigenous theorists argue that individual rights and gender equality are in fact central assumptions in indigenous philosophies. While they recognize the limitations of rights claims and while no one claims that legal rights, especially in the context of colonization, will end domination, indigenous feminists have developed hybrid discourses, rejecting the binary of pure traditions. Indigenous feminists seek Gender justice in the resurgence of Indigenous law, but recognize that this involves a critical revaluation of Indigenous law. For many, transformative resurgence involves a hybrid of Indigenous and Western law practices and solidarities that have long been interwoven. Indigenous feminist theorists and activists have mobilized unique formulations of rights rooted in principles of Indigenous relationality in struggles for inclusion in Indigenous communities in struggles against heteropatriarchal violence and in struggles for Indigenous sovereignty. These formulations have been central to Indigenous resurgence, to the critical revaluation of Indigenous law and struggles for individual and community well-being and for resistance to all forms of domination. Indigenous feminist theorists argue that because the colonization of land has worked and continues to work through the colonization of Indigenous women's bodies, decolonization requires gender justice. And because individual rights and equal rights within a colonizing regime will not secure freedom for Indigenous women, or for anyone, gender justice requires decolonization. As Kira Ladner writes, colonialism is a gendered enterprise defined by racialized sexual violence perpetuated by the church and state as a means of securing control over a nation and its land and it is increasingly being perpetuated from within as a result of neocolonialism, institutionalized sexism and the internalization of sexual violence. Thus she argues decolonization must be reframed as a gendered project. Gender must be decolonized and decolonization must be gendered. The frame of my analysis is the assumption that practices of freedom must be understood not just in terms of binary agonistic relations of power but in terms of complex relations of power and solidarity situated within multiple experiences, discourses, and histories, and oriented toward diverse and shared values, ideals, and futures. Agency is always exercised in relationship with all of these constitutive contexts and relations. Agency then is always a practice of relations of freedom. Because indigenous feminist practices of freedom have been rooted in the core value of relationality, They have been practices of relational freedom, oriented toward the ideal of reciprocity among diverse beings. This means that they've been grounded in an attunement to the complexity of relations among a vast range of strange beings. This attunement to complexity is intrinsic to engagement in relations, both local and global, both intimate and cosmic. Indigenous feminist practices of freedom involve engagement in a complexity of agonistic relations with heteropatriarchal and misogynist institutions and practices, with Indigenous anti-feminisms, with the Canadian state, and with non-Indigenous feminisms. They also involve relations of solidarity and coalition with multiple Indigenous, anti-colonial, and feminist communities. They involve complex relations with multiple discourses and politics of indigenous self-determination, anti-racist and anti-colonial politics, discourses of individual and collective rights and equalities, critiques of discourses of rights and equalities, and philosophies of reciprocity and sovereignty and women's power. They're grounded in histories and experiences of indigenous women's power, of a gendered and racialized colonization and of physical and structural violence. They're oriented toward ideals of reciprocity in indigenous philosophy and law. They are practices of freedom both with and against a multiplicity of forces and relations. Indigenous women activists and theorists have led in reconceiving nationhood and sovereignty in terms of philosophies of relationality and in relation to the sovereignty of individuals and bodies. They've also led in the formulation of relational rights. While they recognize the limitations and critiques of rights discourses, Indigenous feminists have used the language and legal force of rights strategically and pragmatically in national and international contexts where that language prevails. Yet the recourse to rights has been more than a strategic use of the master's tools. Indigenous feminist theorists and activists have reformulated the language of rights. Their reformulations of rights as relational rights have been essential to shifting the central discourses in movements for Indigenous sovereignty and resurgence. This talk draws on a wide range of work by Kathleen Jameson, Patricia Monture, Sharon McIver, Joyce Green, Joanne Barker, Val Napoleon, Audrey Simpson, Leanne Simpson, Benita Lawrence, Kira Ladner, Jody Bird, Diane Million, Rona Coconin, Pam Palmer, Gina Starblanket and Heidi Koweitnipinesig, Stark, Sarah Hunt, and many others whose positions and arguments are diverse and sometimes conflictual. I want to note that while much of this work explicitly advocates indigenous feminism, many indigenous women do not self-identify with the term feminist. I follow the lead of indigenous feminist theorists and activists who do use the term feminist and I use it to refer to theories and politics rather than particular individuals. so I need to start by sketching some historical background so this part is called the gendered politics of settler colonization in Canada breaking relations and I'll start with a quote from Bonita Lawrence in Canada a history of of gender discrimination in the Indian act has created an ongoing conflict with native organizations and reserve communities around notions of individual and collective rights organized along the lines of gender. It's crucially important then to understand the central role that the subordination of Native women has played in the colonization process in order to begin to see the violation of Native women's rights through loss of Indian status, not as the problems faced by individuals, but as a collective sovereignty issue. In Canada, the so-called Indian problem has historically been managed through governance practices that divide populations by racialized identities and by gender. The systematic disempowerment of Indigenous women has been central to the strategy of erosion of Indigenous relations to land and the weakening of capacities for resistance to colonial power. These policies then have worked to undermine indigenous power in order to expropriate indigenous land and resources. In early treaties, the British chose to negotiate only with men, thereby undercutting the stabilizing presence of older women and their traditional authority in major decisions concerning the land. The exclusion of women then has been central to the violation of indigenous laws of relationality and to the violation of the relations of Indigenous people with the land. Government policies have wor- worked systematically to undermine women's power and to attempt to break relations between women and men. Legislation in 1869 officially replaced long standing Indigenous governance with a system of banned councils with minimal powers, reporting directly to the superintendent of Indian, Indian Affairs. And the 1876 Indian Act restricted leadership and participation in the band councils and ownership of land and property to men. Officially stripping women of their customary powers of responsibility for land and water as negotiators and participants in governance. The Indian Act legislated categories of identity and status dividing populations among those with Indian status and those without. According to the Act, women who married out lost their status as Indians, while men who married out retained their status, which was also conferred on their wives. Thus the Indian Act, the body of law that has regulated Indigenous identity and existence for over a century and which continues to do so has explicitly enforced male dominance and the exclusion and disempowerment of women. Indigenous organizations and band councils remain largely male dominated, like most Canadian institutions. The identities legislated in the Indian Act are effects of colonizer state governance, and these legislated identities have worked in part through the co-optation of male leaders of indigenous organizations to enforce what Foucault called dividing practices, dividing not only settlers from Indians, but status Indians from non-status indigenous and mixed bloods, and dividing indigenous men from indigenous women. The breaking of relations between men and women, non-status and status Indians has been and continues to be a sovereignty issue The dividing practices are intended to break indigenous systems of law that are organized around systems of relationality, relations with each other and with land. The strategy of breaking relations has worked to perpetuate heteropatriarchal dominance within indigenous organizations and band councils, which have resisted very often women's attempts to battle the provisions of the Indian Act to be included in their own communities. Indigenous women have long contested this dominance, evicted from their communities upon marriage to non-status men, denied housing and benefits on reserves after divorce or the death of their husbands, denied ownership of marital property, and failing in their appeals to male-dominated Indigenous organizations and band councils. Indigenous women began in the 1970s to engage with Canadian and international justice systems to challenge their exclusion from status, according to the Indian Act. In 1973, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled against the claims of Jeanette Corbert-Laval and Yvonne Bedard that their rights to status and to live in their communities violated the equality provisions in the Canadian Bill of Rights. The court ruled that the status prov- provisions in the Indian Act were exempt from the Canadian Bill of Rights. Following this decision, indigenous women's organizations turned to the United Nations. Sandra Lovelace, a Maliseet woman whose attempt to return to the Tobique Reserve had been rejected by the Ban Council, took her claim to the United Nations Human Rights Committee, which in 1981 ruled that because the Indian Act denied equal treatment of women under the law, denying Lovelace the right to live in her community, Canada violated the international covenant on civil and political rights. Embarrassed by the public humiliation, the Canadian government amended the Indian Act in 1985 to implement gender neutral status provisions and to allow women who had been excluded to reapply for status along with their children. However, the amendment instituted new discriminatory status rules, distinguishing between levels of status and cutting off status after two generations of intermarriage. Successive challenges, including another UN ruling, won by the great Sharon McIver, have finally resulted in the implementation in 2019 of equal gender rights to status, including the recognition of matrilineal lineage back to 1876 under the legal provisions of the Indian Act. This hasn't, of course, ended the legacy of women's exclusion from their communities, which includes extreme rates of poverty homelessness and incarceration. Many are still unable to return home. Nor has it addressed the broader legacy of violence produced by regimes of heteropatriarchal colonization that has been identified and documented in the 2019 report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The struggles of Indigenous women for rights to belong to their communities and rights to participate in Indigenous governance have most often been framed as claims to Western-style individual rights and women's rights. This framing was particularly salient during the constitutional negotiations of the 1980s and early 90s, when the Assembly of First Nations argued that rights to self-government should not be subject to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The Native Women's Association of Canada contested that argument with a clear statement. We want the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms to apply to Aboriginal governments. This position was widely interpreted interpreted by Canadians as supporting liberal multiculturalism and liberal feminism. Western individual rights and women's equality rights must supersede collective rights. Indigenous anti-feminists interpreted it in the same way, but from the opposite side. The Native Women's Association of Canada was demonized for betraying Indigenous sovereignty, importing Western rights discourses to betray Indigenous sovereignty. Both sides then, both liberal feminists and Indigenous anti-feminists, agreed that individual rights and women's rights are intrinsically Western rights and are opposed to indigenous collective rights to sovereignty. But in fact, in a series of position papers, the Native Women's Association of Canada made it very clear that they supported indigenous sovereignty and that women's individual rights are essential to an indigenous sovereignty. In response to their exclusion from the constitutional negotiations, the NWAC drafted an Aboriginal Charter of Rights and Freedoms, arguing that the application of the charter should not be left to to the Canadian state. As they put it, the federal government has mistreated us as women for 100 years. To frame this as a struggle for women's individual rights in opposition to collective rights clearly misses the point. Indigenous women have been struggling for their collective rights to live in and belong to their communities to live as Aboriginal peoples with access to their culture and languages and to participate fully in Indigenous governance. Against the opposition between individual and collective rights, Indigenous feminists, including Val Napoleon, Joyce Green, Joanne Barker, and many others have argued that Indigenous women's individual rights and Indigenous collective rights are in fact mutually supportive. More recently, women's rights discourses have been criticised by advocates of resurgence politics, including Glenn Coulthard. Coulthard argues for a redirection of energies away from endless political battles for state recognition of rights, and for a shift toward practices of individual and collective self-recognition and self-determination. A politics of resurgence involves a retrieval and revaluing of indigenous philosophy, practices, and law and a rebuilding of ways of life rooted in the ethics and politics of what Coulthard calls grounded normativity. This argument for a politics of resurgence is extremely important, but I want to contest the framing of an opposition between struggles for women's rights and resurgence. In his analysis of the conflict over constitutional rights between the Assembly of First Nations and the Native Women's Association of Canada, Coulthard accepts the framing of the claims of indigenous women in terms of a destructive opposition between individual and collective rights. Coulthard concludes that while the concerns expressed by the NWAC were not without merit, The result, unfortunately, has been, as he puts it, a zero-sum contest pitting the individual human right of indigenous women to sex equality against the collective human right of indigenous peoples to self-determination. The frame of the zero-sum game assumes that the conflict between indigenous women's rights and indigenous patriarchal collective rights is the inevitable result of the politics of rights both sides have focused their struggles on misguided appeals for state recognition of Western legal rights. But the reduction of the conflict to a zero sum game between two sides forced to use the discourses of Western legal rights obscures the differences between the two sides of the struggle. As Joanne Barker has pointed out, male dominated indigenous politics of sovereignty have often been oriented toward rights of autonomy and control over their own affairs in a politics of non-interference modeled on state rights. As feminist theorists have argued, the right to non-interference has historically protected patriarchal rights over women and children. In line with this history, male-dominated indigenous organizations and bands have too often argued for their collective rights over women and children in their communities and rights to exclude women and children in line with the provisions of the Indian Act. They've defended their arguments with claims to traditional gender roles and authentic indigenous traditions. Against this understanding of state-like rights to non-interference and against the assumption of incommensurability of a binary between Western individual rights and women's rights on one side and authentic Indigenous culture and tradition on the other. The Native Women's Association and Indigenous feminists have used the language of rights to argue for the inclusion of excluded women and their children in Indigenous communities and polities and for political rights to participation in Indigenous governance. Against the assumption of of an opposition between rights claims and resurgence, Indigenous women's struggles for political and civil rights to belong to their communities, and to participate in governance, are rooted in traditions of indigenous relationality. Indigenous women's struggles for rights have been central to resurgence politics. In fact, they have led in struggles for resurgence. Against the understanding of indigenous polities as autonomous states with rights to non-interference, Indigenous women have formulated conceptions of Indigenous nations in terms of traditions of relationality. Kira Ladner argues that the idea of community well-being and its relationship to governance has largely been overlooked in the Indigenous governance literature and no attention has been paid to the relationship between self-determination and communities in crisis. Rana Kokkonen refers to the distance between hard and soft understandings of nation and governance, between a focus on land rights, resources, and ban governance on one hand, and a focus on the social issues of welfare and well-being of individuals and communities on the other. Against a focus on state-like legal rights of control and resistance to interfere, interference, Indigenous women have been oriented to a politics of self-determination through collective responsibility for individual and community wellness, through restoring relations of reciprocity with land and with each other. Leanne Simpson argues for an understanding of nationhood based on a series of radiating responsibilities. Nation, for Simpson, is a web of connections to each other, to the plant nations, the animal nations, the rivers and lakes, the cosmos, and our neighboring indigenous nations. According to Simpson, the Anishinaabe understood treaties to be partnerships in care for shared land. Pre-colonial treaties could include territorial borders, but these were understood as areas of increased diplomacy, ceremony, and sharing. The idea of sovereignty includes sovereignties over shared territory, and these areas of overlap are not seen as a threat to individual nations' sovereignties because neither nation owns the land. Nationhood is a form of belonging that is not proprietary but custodial. As Audre Simpson argues, this is an understanding of nation very different from the Westphalian state. What I want to claim here is that Indigenous women's rights claims have been central to refocusing Indigenous conceptions of nationhood to prioritize individual and collective well-being through the revaluing of traditions of inclusion and reciprocity rooted in relationality. In other words, Indigenous feminist rights claims have been central to the development of the philosophy and politics of resurgence. Against the politics of control and non-interference, indigenous feminist rights politics draw on an understanding of land not as a right to property that serves as a basis of exclusion, but as the basis of relational rights to belonging and inclusion to participate and to participate in relations of responsibility. Against the liberal feminist argument that individual rights and women's equality rights must supersede collective rights on the grounds that non liberal traditions and collective identities are necessarily patriarchal and oppressive, indigenous feminist struggles for rights are grounded in indigenous tradition, in a critique of the colonizing state and a politics of decolonization. Audra Simpson argues that indigenous women have long represented an alternative political order in which women had power. Paula Gunn-Allen has pointed out that the power and agency of indigenous women and the egalitarian relations in indigenous communities served as a model for the white suffragist feminist movement in America and influenced American and European ideals of freedom and egalitarianism. As Sally Roach-Wagner has documented, the white women suffragists of late 19th century America were directly influenced by their encounters with the nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, where women had rights to own property, to initiate divorce, and to participate in governance. Traditions of women's rights and freedoms then do not originate in the liberal West. Claims that Western liberal values must supersede non-liberal traditions are based in both ignorance of traditions and denial of the history of of colonization. Sharon MacIver has argued that the civil civil and political rights of Aboriginal women are not only fundamental human rights, but Aboriginal rights that predate contact. Aboriginal women's rights form part of the inherent right to Aboriginal self-government, which is now recognized and protected under Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution Act of 1982. As McIver writes, Aboriginal women's civil and political rights are foundational and do not derive their existence from documents or treaties. The right of women to establish and maintain their civic and political role has existed since time immemorial. These rights are part of customary laws of Aboriginal people and part of the rights of Aboriginal self-government. Such rights do not require the imprimatur of state action to qualify as rights. Indigenous feminists recognize that legal rights within the frame of the Indian Act will not in themselves solve the problems of women's exclusion from status or the violence and poverty that are the effects of patriarchal colonization. Criminalizing violence against women will not solve these problems. Many argue that feminist successes in criminalizing violence against women have only increased surveillance, policing, and incarceration. On the other hand, restorative justice programs have often tended to protect the perpetrator more than the victim. As the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report argues, addressing the violence suffered by Indigenous women and children, including the structural violence of exclusion from Indigenous communities, requires addressing the legacies of patriarchal colonization. The challenge to the exclusion of Indigenous women from status and band membership has been a long struggle for what Hannah Arendt called the right to have rights the right to be included as citizens in their political communities. At the same time, the challenge to women's exclusion from citizenship has been a challenge to the dependence of individual rights on the state or on a state-like political entity characterized by sovereignty as the right of non-interference. Defying the opposition between political citizen and non-political human, bare life, Indigenous women have insisted that nationhood is a function of individual and community well-being in relationship with each other and with land. Not sovereign protection from outside interference. Citizenship then is a relationship among individuals in social and political community and rights to citizenship are rooted in an Indigenous law. The rights claims made by the Native Women's Association and Indigenous women excluded from their communities have not been arguments for abstract individual rights. These claims have formulated an unique discourse of rights and of the right to have rights in the context of Indigenous relationality. Indigenous women have drawn on the available language of rights to formulate a discourse and politics of inclusion and belonging. The language of rights has allowed them to engage with the state and the Indian Act and with band councils established by the state to challenge the conditions of their exclusion. But that language is grounded in the language and assumption of indigenous laws of relationality. They've formulated then a hybrid discourse of rights and of relationality. The Native Women's Association of Canada has argued for rights to be restored to our former position, invoking traditions of matrilineal descent and women's power and their responsibilities for traditions of relationality. As Patricia Monture argues, Aboriginal peoples are really struggling for the right to be responsible for land. And she says, I do not know of anywhere else in history where a group of people have had to fight so hard just to be responsible. Indigenous women have been struggling for the right to be responsible within Indigenous communities and organizations, to be responsible for land broadly construed as a system of relations among diverse beings. Rana Kokunin argues that the project of Indigenous self-determination is to restructure relations of domination Drawing on Jennifer Nadelsky's argument that addressing relations of violence and injustice requires restructuring relations, including personal, institutional, and systemic structural relations, Kokunin argues for an understanding of indigenous self-determination in terms of what Nadelsky calls a core core value, a widely shared understanding of what a group considers indispensable for their well-being as individuals and as a collectivity. Coconin formulates this understanding of self-determination in contrast to the understanding of indigenous self-determination as a right to non-interference. Following Coconin's understanding of self-determination as a practice of restructuring relations, I want to suggest that indigenous feminist struggles for rights can best be understood as struggles to restructure relations. While Coconin tends to posit the understanding of struggles to restructure relations in opposition to rights claims, Nydalski argues that rights are best understood not as individual entitlements, but as instruments that structure relationships. Rights can be seen as collective decisions about the implementation of core values. Rights then can be assessed by asking whether they promote or undermine core values. Following this relational analysis, indigenous feminist struggles for rights can be seen as struggles to restructure relations to realize the core values of grounded normativity and reciprocity in indigenous philosophies. While the focus of many of these claims has been unchanging the laws within the Indian Act, at the same time they challenge the legitimacy of the Indian Act. The Native Women's Association argues that restructuring relations requires abolishing the Indian Act and instituting critically revalued indigenous systems of law. Aboriginal women's rights claims are rooted in multiple traditions. They're fundamental and inherent individual rights. They're rights under customary Aboriginal laws and they're recognized by the government of Canada and by international law. These multiple sources of rights are reiterated in the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, which asserts that Indigenous women and girls are holders of inherent Indigenous rights, constitutional rights, and international and domestic human rights. Indigenous feminist rights politics have been central to the distinction between critical and uncritical resurgent politics, between feminist and queer conceptions of transformative resurgence and conceptions of resurgence that merely continue heteropatriarchal domination. For example, the Indigenous Law Research Unit at the University of Victoria, founded by Val Napoleon and Hadley Freeland, works with Indigenous communities seeking to revitalize their laws, attending to a range of issues, including gender relations and issues of violence and human rights. Another example, violence on the land, violence on our bodies, a report authored by the Women's Earth Alliance and the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, draws an explicit connection between the destruction of land and the violation of indigenous bodies, in particular, the bodies of women, children and gender diverse people. The report traces connections between attacks on the earth and attacks on women, and between effects of environmental destruction, of extractive industries on health, and the high rates of sexual violence by workers in man camps. Extractive industries are seen as patriarchal practices of domination that produce forms of gender-based environmental violence. Violence on the land, violence on our bodies, calls for responses to violence that resist appeals to the state for more policing. Instead, the focus is on reclaiming traditions to build a transformative resurgence that emphasizes practices of care for selves and communities to address trauma and to build cultures of consent. Yet while this politics resists appeals to the state, it does rely on invocations of rights. Building and rebuilding cultures of a consent over land and bodies draws on traditions of rights to consent grounded in the principle of free prior and informed consent, an internationally accepted principle that recognizes indigenous people's inherent and prior rights to their lands and resources and respects their legitimate authority to require that third parties enter into an equal and respectful relationship with them based on the principle of informed consent. Here this principle is extended to bodies where consent is understood as consensual ongoing agreement about action on your land or your body. Body sovereignty then is seen as a fundamental right to consensual relations. The invocation of the right to bodily sovereignty is grounded in an ethic of reciprocity and it's indebted to a history of indigenous women's claims to rights that are inherent and fundamental, that are rooted in relations to land, and that are recognized in Aboriginal customary law, as well as Canadian and international law. These invocations of rights have a central place in the politics of resurgence. To summarize then, Indigenous feminist rights claims have generated unique formulations of relational rights, rooted in and oriented toward the ethic of relationality that is specific to Indigenous law, Indigenous feminist rights discourses are formulated through an attunement to the complexity of relations. Claims to rights are grounded in critically analyzed and interpreted traditions of Indigenous and Western law, state and international law, producing hybrid discourses of rights, including rights to have rights, focusing on critiques of violation of relationship. These rights claims are addressed to multiple addressees. They're sometimes addressed to states and to international bodies, including the United Nations. They're also addressed to white men and to Indigenous men and to male-dominated Indigenous organizations and bands. Making claims to the state does not entail an assumption of the rightful authority of state power, any more than making claims to men and male leaders assumes the rightful authority of patriarchal power. Rights claims can assert the agency and power of the claimant and can invoke the normative ideal of reciprocal relations to criticize an imbalance of power between claimant and addressee. As Valeria del Toro argues in her analysis of rights discourses in Puerto Rico, the success of rights claims is not necessarily tied to recognition by the state. In his analysis of the activism at Standing Rock, Ben Davis argues that indigenous right claims can be sites of theoretical innovations in contemporary understandings of human rights. As he writes, human rights claims without a taken for granted orientation to the state can become a shared language for protecting, imagining, and realizing alternative political communities, alternative self-authorized forms of social organization. The aim of Indigenous Feminist Rights claims is to restructure and transform relations to shift from relations of patriarchal colonization to relations of reciprocity. These reformulations of rights and of collectivity provide models for all of us in coalitional politics of reconciliation with each other and with the earth.